Hi, everyone. <laughs> Welcome again to um, the Lit Must Fall Reading Group. This is, I think, the fourth or the fifth episode that we're recording, and, and uh, we're kind of starting to find our, our feet now. It's been it's been a lot of fun. We've shared um, three episodes so far, and uh, yeah. Um, this week, we are discussing To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. And as usual, we have uh, Tara in the room. Hi, Tara. Hi. And we have Pekisa. Hello. Hello. And Kavita. Hi. And then our guest uh, this time is uh, Nassim. So welcome, Nassim. Thanks for coming. Hi. Um, the book begins with a scene where uh, James, Mrs. Ramsey's son, is cutting a magazine, cutting things out of a magazine. And uh, Mrs. Ramsey promises him that, or she, she says that hopefully they will go to the lighthouse the next day. And then Mr. Ramsey, her husband, immediately says that that cannot happen. And James feels like this anger. And so immediately we're kind of in, in the scene where like this sort of tussle between mother and husband and child. Maybe we can just start there. What did, what did you make of that opening scene? How do you, what do you think? Uh, should I go first? Sure. I love this opening scene because it, in part, because it's um, the perfect example of kind of, it, it, it sort of introduces you to, to Wolf's language in a way and to everything it can do. So it's almost like a kind of muscle flexing right there. I mean, the first word of the first uh, chapter is yes. The first word of the second chapter is no. And the first word of the la third chapter is perhaps. <laughs> um, uh, not only that, but like you kind of go um, in and out of people's heads. Um, so it's not that, she's the first person to kind of drag us into a character's head, but she kind of drags us in and then pulls us out and puts us in somebody else's head and takes us out. So you have that kind of fluidity right there that's happening. Um, and then I just love the, the, like the, the, the kind of the, um, how would I put it? Like the kind of parody of the Oedipus complex of uh, James wants to just like murder his father um, for not wanting to take them I thought like that's another kind because it's such like a, a, a domestic common kind of scene and then underneath it you can feel this kind of violence like just on right underneath the scene of such peaceful of such a peaceful nature. As I, as, as I was reading that that interaction, speaking of James and his relationship with his father, I was thinking they're not that different. Like they're both kind of pulling on this woman, you know, both. Uh, yeah, so I found that interesting. Yeah, and it's not just James who has the vision. Well, James has the vision of cutting his father with, you know, a knife or a poke or whatever. But then you also hear that uh, the father is lean as a knife and that this feeling uh, emerges in the hearts of all of his children, you know, that um, absolutely all of them feel this way because of what he is like. His very body sort of cuts them. Um, so it's hard not to hate him, but I kind of, you know, what I find moving is that Virginia Woolf doesn't seem to hate him, you know, like every once, every here and there, there's like, like at the end when Lily Briscoe's um, telling, he's showing his boots to Lily Briscoe. Do you remember that scene? And she's, she describes him as an, as a figure of infinite pathos. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's kind of an interesting, um, it's an interesting deconstruction of masculinity that is both really harsh, but has this kind of empathy to it. 
I mean, I didn't find him sympathetic at all. Yeah. Not even that no. scene that you're talking about with the boots. I mean, I, I felt like it, he was being ridiculed. Um, but yeah, I thought he was quite, quite a, uh, maybe even a caricature because he was so, um, so awful. I did, he didn't even seem to have any, any, any redeeming um, yeah, and yet, and yet, Lily Briscoe finds him filled with pathos, right, and describes him as even in the moment of the boots, she says um, that he still has charm. <laughs> I, charm. That, I read that differently, and I read it similarly to the way that um, Mrs. Ramsey throughout is constantly trying to convince herself, like she's always wavering between deep contempt for him and uh, admiration, but that admiration just seems to me to be. Um, her trying to actually it's about herself maybe we're jumping now to mrs ramsey but it's like she's constantly trying to justify her life and her existence and the fact that she's devoted herself to this man um so every time she kind of says anything sympathetic about him or you know admires him i feel like it's just her saying no no i haven't i haven't like made a mess of my life to devote it to this man um it's the um, right I feel like there is, um, I, I have to say, I agree, though, that Virginia Woolf does seem to have a sympathy towards uh, Mr. Ramsey, which seems strange, um, given the character that he is. And uh, Mr. Ramsey is based uh, on, on her father, you know, we, oh. we hear. And I wonder whether this is like the writer grappling with a really difficult relationship that she had and then trying to, you know, how we try to find like something, some love within that contempt in order to survive. So one part which I really liked, which is a, a kind of parallel to Lily Briscoe and the boot scene, is when um, I think it's James or is it Cam? Let me just check. It's near the end of the novel. It's, it's James. And he says again that he wanted to kill his father. But then he says, um, he says, it's, it's a really nice scene. He says, um, it was not him, that old man reading whom he wanted to kill, but it was a thing that descended on him without his knowing it perhaps, that fierce sudden black winged harpy with its talons and its beak, all cold and hard that struck and struck at you. And he could feel the beak on his bare legs where it had struck when he was a child and then made off. And there he was again, an old man, very sad, reading his book. And it feels at this point that there's some, I mean, to imagine like this fierceness or this like a, a rage and sullenness of this man as being something that descends upon him and perhaps connected to his sadness is something that redeems him, I think, in Virginia Woolf's eyes. Well, um, I, I, I just feel like to kind of see Mrs. Ramsey and, con and, and conflate Mrs. Ramsey with the children to sort of basically say oh, the children want to kill him. Mrs. Ramsey is just kind of like deep down kind of just, uh, has contempt for him. It's, we would lose that really one of the real great subtleties of the text, which is to show that intergen that generational change you know, between Mrs. Ramsey on the one hand, who like is, is such an interesting character in her relationship, right, to men, because she says she's like she has all of the, that sex under her protection. She's kind of an older generation, you know, so she and 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 her and so she she, she uh, infantilizes them. 
uh, and she kind of is not woke enough for her own daughters, you know, who kind of like look up to her and, uh, you know, think that she's silly and think that her life choices, this is like right at the beginning, um, and they dream of a better life, a more interesting life. Uh, than than Mrs. Ramsey's versus the the kids like James or you know who who just want to kill him, and even the daughters who really really have contempt for him. I think the daughters don't care about him at all. So it's so so it's really striking that Lily Briscoe at the end, like describes him as having charm and infinite pathos. Um, and I think it's meaningful because of her painting. Right, her painting is supposed to bring male and female together you know the kind of the two elements it's like weaving weaving together those things that are disparate in the same way that um you know that's that's what mrs ramsey is said to do to weave she's always knitting you know it's, she's she's the great uh, connector the person who weaves together the different people in the room i think it's quite interesting that we've kind of uh, zoomed in on mr ramsey i guess he's he's almost like a caricature of himself uh, but in terms of that polarity and and you know the contradiction that he embodies and, and I do think that he is portrayed as as sort of a tyrannical figure but also like sympathetic I think there is truly love that Mrs Ramsey does feel for him and Cam and even James by the end he's able to kind of separate something out so he, he's able to separate his hatred away from like the humanity of his father as well um, and I guess like that that's one of the things that Wolf does so beautifully is how she's able to show the way in which people carry these contradictions and in in one moment you feel one way about them and in the other moment you you're completely you know you're you're caught completely in in a different um, feeling um, so yeah I, I think that it's not Mr. Ramsey is not unique in that depiction. I think most of the characters, Mrs. Ramsey also displays like tyrannical qualities, right? Um, although in a very different, uh, with a very different uh, approach and, and it, it, it manifests in a different way, but she is also um, kind of ab abuses her power in certain in certain senses and, and people feel that pressure uh, you were saying the scene about the scene with Lily Briscoe and mm -hmm. the pathos but I but what was I, that was overshadowed for me by Lily Briscoe, uh, Briscoe constantly talking about his um you know obsessive need for sympathy how he's waiting for her expecting her to say something and at one point she says he's like a lion that devours you know and and his like you know like she feels that what Mrs. Ramsey felt like amplified far more. Yeah, um, exactly. Lily, but, yeah. She feels, but she feels guilty too, and she keeps, you know, feeling bad that she and and that's probably what defines her. It's like she feels constantly torn between, you know, not wanting to do what a woman is supposed to do, but then feeling that she should have done it. So she should have given him that sympathy that Mrs. Ramsey gave him. To stay with this idea of Mrs. Ramsey's complicity, I myself feel a bit torn about like, do we blame women for their own? oppression in a sense 
but but at the same so on the one hand mrs ramsey feels like this sponge who's just being like you know emotionally drained on the other hand like you said she's like oh i am the the weaver together of this whole thing which she is and the supporter and like i'm i'm mother earth basically like everyone including lily bristol are standing upon me like none of this would exist if it wasn't for mrs ramsey's like constant sacrifice I think I would say that Mrs. Ramsey is like way more complicated than that. I think she's so much more than than just the matriarch. Um, and especially when we, you know, when we see her at points when she is kind of in solitude and, and where her mind goes is like, it's it's nothing like that. It's not, you know, it it is, she has her own interiority that is outside the mother, outside the wife. And also she, um, as much as she kind of holds on to these these institutions of marriage and, and the way things ought to be, she still very much appreciates Lily for her mind. You know, she admires Lily. She thinks she's, she's more attractive for being intelligent. Um, and, you know, she constantly throughout the, the first part uh, of the text is, is kind of also very dismissive of um, men and masculinity. And she describes them as sterile and and kind of um to, to be pitied really so I think she she does both and I, I think that's what this this novel does and what Wolf is able to do is you can't I feel you can't pin anyone in any kind of a category um so I, yeah I would feel really hesitant to try and do that but I do I do think that Mrs. Ramsey is like such an exception uh, to, to these like strict caricatures, you're right, because she's so complex and her, her beauty and her kindness uh, and the way that Aisha, you're saying like she's a sponge of everybody else's emotions and like this, the, the centrality of her consciousness in the text um, just makes her stand out compared to all the rest. And, then and there is that scene, sorry Aisha, mm -hmm. um, there is that scene at the end where Lily's kind of contemplating uh, the relationship between Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey, and and she goes into a little bit of detail. It's the first that we hear about it, really, of how Mrs. Ramsey does um, kind of hold her ground and and make Mr. Ramsey apologize and and reject him at points. And and when she's had enough, she's had enough. She doesn't want to speak to him, um, and and he he then has to work to win her background. And so it's not necessarily the case that their relationship was always her placating him. Um, so, yeah, I think, again, even in her dynamic with Mr. Ramsey, there, there is more than I think it's tempting to, to see her as, as, you know, the epitome of, of like maternal um, mothering, uh, the good wife. But I think she, she is more than that. I think connected to um, what you're saying, Bakiza, I feel like there's this, I know this has come up in um, earlier discussions as well, um, but there is a bit of an illusion of power um, throughout. So even in this, you know, idea that she can, you know, she has power over Ms. Mr. Ramsey. And it's something that's there throughout the novel with, you know, other men as well. You know, this constant idea that she kind of feels like she's, she has power over these men and the whole like references to empire and colonialism also tie into that because there's you know a couple of references of these are men who you know have like are colonizers they've, they've colonized the world 
and so these men are so powerful this is part of her complicity and yet i have power over these men of you know some form but i do think that we can question that power i don't know don't know what the rest of you think if that's something that the book the novel is alluding to or if that's something that we are bringing to it but it's not really it's not real power she doesn't actually have you know power in the world for example but even how much power does she have in that relationship as well I mean I I think that Wolf is definitely asking us to kind of question that I don't think we're projecting it and the reason I say that is because of that scene with Charles Stansley so when she goes to help this poor woman um, and Charles Stansley is kind of like fantasizing about her and like and and it's really funny it ends with her looking at the the poster for a circus uh, like she's saying that that kind of like masculinity is like a circus, right? It's a performance. But there's this moment when she's coming down the stairs and she's standing in front of the the portrait of Queen Victoria. And right in that moment, that's when then when Charles Stansley is like suddenly fantasizes about seeing her with violets and cyclamens in her hair. And I feel like that scene is basically saying like she's she's standing in front of the of the portrait of Queen Victoria. So he is he's actually in love with empire. He's not really in love, like he's really subjected to the power of empire, like not really the power of uh, Mrs. Ramsey. And then she kind of walks by it. So it, I, I feel like her standing in front of the portrait is really encouraging us to wonder like who actually has real power in this, in this novel, you know? But at the same time, okay, maybe it's an illusion of power, like uh, the same section where you said she has the holes of the, the other sex under her, her protection. Yeah. That That is an illusion. But then she says, no woman could fail to feel or to find agreeable something trustful, childlike, reverential. She brings this out in men. And, you know, like Charles Tansley is like desperate to hold her bag or pay for a taxi. And is that is I mean, in in this kind of world, I mean, this is just as applicable today, very much so, you know, and in this kind of world where what the power is, is that a power that we have the power to make men stop in their tracks and hold our handbags? Like, is that power or not? I mean, it's, it's, is it power because it traps her into a certain role? So she has to play a certain role in order to get, you know, this momentary sense of, which is also quite patronizing as well, but she has to play that role of a woman. So then, you, you know, that, that makes you question that, that power. Yeah, I mean, I would uh, 100% agree with that. I don't think that that's real. Personally, I don't think that a guy like buying, paying for your taxi or carrying your bag is real power. Like, I think it's just a, a form of domestication. Uh, and we've just been told that that's like Mrs. Ramsey believes, oh, it's childlike, it's wonderful, it's this. But I mean, the, her children don't believe that. And certainly Lily Briscoe doesn't believe that. And I guess this is the this is the other indication that it, it is in power, right? Because it doesn't it doesn't result in solidarity. In fact, it results in her being desperate for Lily and Prue and everyone to get married. Because yeah, and she calls. I mean, the first thing she says about Lily is that Lily doesn't matter and that she's pucker faced, you know. And but but I I don't know that I, I I because of the shape of the whole novel, right? The fact that there's like a day and a half, and then ten years, and then a day and a half, and in those ten years, it's the war. Right, which did kind of actually uh, help uh, uh, the cause of women um, in 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 the UK like massively. Um, I think the 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 first only propertyed women were allowed to vote, but it was like 
right there in, at, during that time. And so in, in the way that that's reflected in Virginia Woolf's uh, not in the, Into the Lighthouse is that that's the moment at the end of the, of the war, that's when Lily Briscoe moves into the house. And then the first line of the next chapter is then peace came. Right, so Lily Briscoe moves in, and then peace comes. And and I, I, I personally, I always interpret that as saying like this previous era, right before the war, um, was not a place of female empowerment, right, at all. Uh, and in fact, Mrs. Ramsey has to die um, to then for then a new era to begin, where those who were previously left outside of the house are brought inside of the house, and there can be peace, and women can finally represent, right? They can finally like the final, the last line is I've had my vision. And like there's this, and, and there's a line that comes up throughout the novel like several times, which is um, the, the voice of Charles Tan Tanley saying, women can't paint, women can't write. Um, it comes up like three or four times. And I feel like it's, that's the, that's, I feel like that's the, that's the real plot, you know, of what's actually happening. Like an older generation is lost and it's really sad. And then there's a new kind of era that begins where women like Lily Briscoe finally have a place in that society. And, and there can be a new kind of representation and a new kind of writing that can begin. But Lily Briscoe really admires uh, Mrs. Ramsey's attention to what she sees as a certain kind of truth, um, right? That is, Lily Briscoe has had her vision by the end of the thing, but what uh, Mrs. Ramsey represents for her, and we shouldn't forget that for Mrs. Ramsey and for the novel, what Lily Briscoe represents is that vision, and that vision has something to do with what we're repeatedly told are her Chinese eyes, right? And I think that's interesting. But uh, what Lily says about Mrs., or what Lily thinks about Mrs. Ramsey is, uh, she was glad to rest in, in silence, uncommunicative, to rest in the extreme obscurity of human relationships. Who knows what we are, what we feel? Who knows, even at the moment of intimacy, this is knowledge. Aren't things spoiled then, Mrs. Ramsey may have asked. It seemed to have happened so often, the silence by her side, by saying them. Aren't we more, more expressive thus, right? That is, Mrs. Ramsey represents a certain kind of lack of interest in knowing. And I think this is maybe partly why Lily Briscoe is able to feel sympathy for uh, her husband, who is interested in his own very narrow idea of the truth, right? Whose accusation against Mrs. Ramsey's uh, way of speaking that he thinks the children have inherited is that she exaggerates, right? Mrs. Ramsey may not be interested in power in a clear way. Mrs. Ramsey's idea of relationships has a claim to a very different kind of truth that maybe the text also endorses in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would agree. I think Lily is trying to bring both. Uh, uh, Lily disturbs the binary, you know. Like Lily is, is she? There's certain things about Mr. Ramsey that she likes, and certain things about Mrs. Ramsey, and like that complicated relationship that she has, which is, you know, I she 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 rejects those those life choices, but she also says, I owe I owe it all to her. And she feels like I want the hedge, the house, the children, like she feels the real lure of, of that life. Like it, it, it does have a lure for some of us, you know, some of us did want to have that life uh, at some point in our lives, at least, you know, like the, at least when I was younger, I mean, I kind of thought Mrs. Ramsey was like, 
an ideal, you know, like I didn't, I didn't think Lily Briscoe is a real hero, like, and, and it kind of goes back to what Aisha was saying about reading this at different points in your own journey, like as a, as a woman, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this as I was reading it this time. The first time I read it, I had no interest in or sympathy for Mrs. <laughs> Ramsey. I was so bored. But uh, this time, I thought, oh, the, the, way in which the domestic anxieties intrude on what Pakisa was talking about earlier, which is this sort of much more complex interiority. I had so much sympathy for that this time round. But I also wanted to bring up um, other power structures in the novel. And I think that gender probably ends up getting centralized. But I was interested in class and also, I guess we've touched on it, age and youth. So we were talking, um, you were talking about Charles Tansley, and I feel like he's actually quite a complex character. And on one hand, he's atrocious. And on the other hand, I felt like I was, I don't know, not exactly had compassion for him, but, and it's because of his class background. And I could see that he is an outsider because of where he's come from. And he's come into this world as someone who's, you know, self-made. His grandfather was a fisherman. His dad was a chemist. And he's got this explosive anger in him as well and he at one point I think uses the word gunpowder or something you know but he has got this scorn deep down for these people because he's somebody who has not come and can't take it for granted and I felt like this is one of the ways in which you know I I really didn't like Mrs Ramsey I think there's lots of things I didn't like about her but it's this thing about being nice and everything should always be nice and you know like he is he threatens that And of course, because he's feeling so insecure and he feels so insecure because of his class and coming as an outsider and, you know, he's not one of them who takes all this for granted. He draws on his supremacy as a man. So, you know, his maleness gets amplified for him because of, you know, his insecurity and sense of inferiority. But then I found that the the fact that actually Lily and um, Mrs. Ramsey I really didn't find them likable in the fact that they have no understanding of this and no sense of it because they don't understand this about him because they're so comfortable in their privileged location. So, and I mean, the other thing at the same time was the fact that they have their insecurities, like Mrs. Ramsey, for example, when she sees Charles, she feels insecure because of her age. And I think maybe maybe Lily does as well. So, you know, they have that insecurity that they're bringing and they're talking about his youth. Um, no, actually, it's um, um, who is the character who um, uh, uh, Lily might be having an, a relationship with? Uh, Banks, Mr. Banks. So he, so he actually says that you know Charles, maybe his all his like, you know, politics, and he's he's young, and you know maybe he's intimidated as well by his youth. So that's the I guess it all complicates it. But I thought he was a more complex character. I mean, I would definitely agree. I think that there there there's a there's a definitely a strong case that Virginia Woolf was not as um, interested in class as she was in gender. Um, but I do think that she was interested in class because there are passages that kind of uh, address that. And in particular, but but it, we might kind of feel that it's clumsy now, but like the character of Mrs. McNabb, um, who is who re- who's literally described as the slave class and like as this poor old cleaning woman. Uh, and then during the war, when everyone is gone, 
the only thing that can see in the house and like there's this repetition of leering glancing looking watching like it's the only the only people that can watch when everybody's at war or gone or grown old is uh certain heirs in the house and I, I don't know if that stands in for god or like for the spiritual realm like i don't know what those heirs necessarily represent but and then mrs mcnab and like i i Mrs. McNabb is like this really kind of almost like this sprightly character, like supernatural character. She's 90 years old, but she's like incredibly limber. Uh, and she's like rocking herself and jumping over the banisters and sliding under the beds. And, and like with her, it's almost like a Walt Disney scene from Cinderella. Like she's like this sort of cartoon character. And I don't know. I mean, you can, it's, there's definitely, a, the, it raises the question, like is, is Wolf, kind of celebrating or paying her respects to to that class, that other class that is kind of not really in the novel otherwise, or is she dehumanizing it by kind of fetishizing it as this sort of uh, magical kind of figure? Um, and interestingly, in contrast, she doesn't at all do that with Charles Tansley, who I agree is, is also marked by his different class. Um, but I feel like the, the it's hard to find sympathy for him, you know, even despite, despite that, because he's so aggressive to the, the other characters and, and, and he's so misogynistic. Yeah, so I, I didn't have sympathy for, I mean, um, the text doesn't have sympathy for him, but I felt no. a lot of sympathy. Mm-hmm. But for the, I mean, the servants are very, very, very marginalised in, you know, the, the main part of the novel. They just, ref, you know, it's just basically a name or, you know, this this servant or this, um, Swiss girl or you know and they're getting things done so they're completely getting the kind of the the structure you know this whole like edifice of this of this home but they are invisibilized and marginalized but then I think that that effort to kind of give a voice um, like you said actually just betrays Wolf's limitations because I think that when you try to you know create or give voice to a working class character that character is not three-dimensional she's I mean she's just working she's a working body and I also felt that she's got this kind of nostalgia for how it was which I think is always something you know that the the the, the elites would always think that everything is you know when it's in that status quo that is you know that is a positive thing and as if working class characters only exist as part of that and when that is not there they will you know like actually maybe they could be celebrating that you know the masters have gone and now we're free or but you could never really imagine it in that way it's as if they only exist as complete people when they're part of this oppressive structure that's that's kind of interesting because I found that um, it's interesting you would say like they're marginalized and they are right like they're definitely not all the central characters are rich and uh, they're they're not the only people in the in the world depicted but yet they're they're centralized but structurally and Virginia Woolf is really into structure you know because because of the two days ten years two days things and like the shape of her sentences and stuff if you open the book right at the middle, you find Mrs. McNabb, like she's at at a structural and and formal level at the center of this novel is an old lady cleaning a house, you know, if you slice it down the middle, that's, that's what you get. So it's, so it's like this weird, yeah, I agree. Like this kind of effort to centralize and to ask a question and to say like, what about these other characters and where do they stand in this transformation? Because of course that middle part of the novel is the war. 
Um, so there is some attempted engagement, like you're saying, um, with the Mrs. McNabb section at the same time. Um, I think what Kavita was saying was about Mrs. McNabb herself, her nostalgic look at oh my god the house used to be so wonderful and vibrant and now you know so her so this presumption that they would have this kind of nostalgic gaze at what was going on I found a bit suspect as well and then her engagement with Charles Tansley and and his class is also there and just in the fact that you know it keeps coming up and in his like loathing of it but also like desire to be of it you know there was something about that that felt very um real and precise and um and then also Lily at some point I think she says about Charles Tansley like it's um it's impossible to dislike anyone really if you look close enough and so she, Virginia Woolf does have this remarkable quality of even these sort of unlikable characters, like someone who says to Lily, like women can't write or paint. She's still thinking about why he says that and how he said that, not because he really thinks it, but he has to think it or he wants to think it. So there's always this kind of interrogation of different kind of psychological layers of, of the characters. And... Um, yeah, no, no doubt there are limitations, but I think there is a, a real attempt, just as Lily attempts with her painting to look as closely as she can, I think there is an attempt to look. I think for me, in terms of the depictions of class and, and the working class, I think I think there's a like a, some there's different economies going on here where you've got Mrs. McNabb, which I actually thought was probably the the one real point where I felt like um, Wolf uh, was very patronizing and actually did a, a quite a terrible job of depicting a character where she's she's almost she's quite grotesque isn't she she's like barely human in her depiction and um, you know that the stereotypes around what she cares about and how she spends her time is she is a, a total caricature with no interiority she has no interiority in a text that is centered on uh, the interiority of of the characters um whereas with Tansley I feel like he is depicted in a much more complex way and and that's perhaps because he might be poor and he might be from a working class background but he's managed to work him work his way out of that and there's this whole economy around intellect which he he can place himself there um regardless of his poverty and in a way he kind of he owns his poverty, doesn't he? And he uses it to kind of torment uh, the the upper class, the the other characters in the text. So I think there's something about the fact that he is male um, also, but the fact that he is an intellectual, which makes him more acceptable than uh, Mrs. McNabb, who is purely there to, to, to labour, right? Um to carry out the needs of other people. Uh, yeah, and her, her depiction is so, so simplistic. I felt that was Wolf maybe trying, but doing a really bad job. So I think it's like, it's a, maybe clumsy, but it, it's a, it, it's not a, it, it's, she tried really hard, you know? Like I feel like there's a, there's a real effort here of saying, you know, visions of joy, they must have been at the washtub 
uh, with her children at the public house. So she's like, she's this kind of privileged woman imagining the life of a poor woman like Mrs. McNabb and saying like, there must be something nice in her life, maybe from her children, maybe at the, maybe at the pub, like she had some good times, you know? <laughs> so she's like really trying, which as irritating as it is, is, is I feel like better than erasure, you know, which is what was common in, in, in the writing of the time. To be honest, I think erasure is better. <laughs> I, think, uh, I mean, this, this, I mean, you basically can't imagine that, that people live lives that are not in relation to you. So, um, and yeah, through that perspective. I'm, one of the things I do wonder about Charles Tansley, though, I'm not sure if we are bringing the sympathy to his character and is it actually there in the book? And I, is it Bakiza that said this? I wonder if there is some truth in that, that maybe there is something that the writer is bringing to, you know, judge him, which is, again, reflecting her class location, which is, you know, a kind of this crass person who is, you know, whose who's masculinity is just so, you know, violent and aggressive, who, I mean, in some ways, he's not different from Mr. Ramsey, but Mr. Ramsey is able to be that in a more sophisticated way than Charles Tansley, you know, be that man. And he's able to get what he wants out of the world. He's actually a worse character, but Charles Tansley is, you know, depicted in a in a way where I feel like there are some readers, especially in that context in which it was written, who would be reading Charles Tansley with kind of, you know, sniggers and recognition because they would know somebody like that. And that that person would have been like really awkward and uncomfortable and irritating and dismissed by everybody and kind of ridiculed when they're not there. We still see this now as well. I feel like Mr. Ramsey is a character who can have it all. And, and this is what like is infuriating about him because he's able to be very egotistical, but at the same time, he's able to have a perfect life where he has a beautiful wife and he has his children and he, you know, he's, he's able to still have a supposedly ideal life. He's unhappy. He's unhappy. I mean, in the end, Mr. Ramsey is re revealed to be wretched, right? And Charles Tansy is revealed to be more kind of happy or settled, even if it's said in a slightly cynical way. I also feel like a, a reader, my guess is that a reader would have more sympathy for Charles Tansley than Mr. Mr. Ramsey, just because with Charles Tansley, you understand more the sources of his bad behavior, if you want to call it that, you know, and also just the way he's described his background is referred to how he's supporting his, his, his sister and his father, how hard he's worked, how he'd rather be in his room, how insecure he feels. I think actually he's a much more sympathetic character than Mr. Ramsey. I mean, Mr. Ramsey also, there is like an explanation is attempted for his, um, for his bad behavior, if you want to call it that. And that's just a kind of like a like a darkness or a wedge or some kind of like something that just leaves him devastated. Like in the end, Mr. Ramsey turns to stone. Whereas Charles Tansy manages to live. I mean, I, I think that um, of all the readers, right, who are going to read this in 1927, some of them would have been like Charles Tansley. You know, some of them would have been people who did not come from uh, the upper class, but still went to Oxford and now are desperately like have this complicated relationship with that class. Um, and I think like those readers by reading this, they kind of 
they're invited almost to kind of think about how much of their misogyny is 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 it, like how much of their kind of feelings about class is intersects with their misogyny um, and vice versa people who are not like Charles Stansley kind of also thinking about those the, how those two things are related you know like uh, again and again there's this sense I, I, I don't know if you got this sense too but that Virginia Woolf is almost saying he because of his class insecurity he's even worse with he's even more misogynistic and violent against women because of the class insecurity that he feels so almost like if 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 one went away, the other one would be alleviated. Yeah. When when you say even more, I think maybe you're saying even more than Ms. Mr. Ramsey, and not necessarily, or maybe you mean even more, because well, Mr. Ramsey has an interesting like. Where does Mr. Ramsey's misogyny come from? He he wants to he's like wants to go from A to Z, but he knows that he'll be stuck at Q, right? And he can't get over the fact that he'll be stuck at Q, and he needs constant comfort and reassurance that oh Q is amazing like you're it's amazing that you reach I mean I don't know that Mr. Ramsey has much of an excuse for the way he is beyond the fact that he's like super privileged like sees himself as like the leader of an expedition right like he's kind of like this like privileged white man born in a society that places him at the top of the food chain and so he and he makes himself miserable or asks constantly for our sympathy and like fills himself with whiskey because he just can't deal with like the privilege of it all. I, I mean, I don't know where his, at least with Charles Stansley, like, you know, he's facing real obstacles. And, but what, what, what's, I, I don't know if Mr. Ramsey really has much of an excuse, which doesn't mean that we're not invited to have sympathy for him. It's maybe, I mean, to me, it felt like the mother's breast, like he's a child reaching for the mother's breast, right? Like, I don't think the text is looking for excuses for anybody. I don't think that's the logic on which the text works at all. And I think that's actually one of its flaws also. In terms of class, I wouldn't say that this is uh, particularly groundbreaking for its time. In fact, I would say it if we're thinking of it in the light of progress, it takes a step back in terms of class from 19th century novels in both the French and the English traditions. I do think that uh, even, for instance, we talked about Jane Eyre, that novel can imagine an interiority to all, for all sorts of people much better than this one can, I would say. But it is interesting that the person who, um, with whom Lily Briscoe imagines having, imagines that whole fantasy of shedding the codes, that person is Tansley. And so do you remember that moment? Like for no, me, that, when does that happen? I've been looking for it for some time. Yeah, I think this is it. Um, so they're talking. And uh, this is where we hear about Tansley is thinking about how he's going, he's remembering all of this to say to his actual friends, right? About how they all talk so much nonsense. Um, and he says, they're in a society where one could say what one liked, he would sarcastically describe staying with the Ramses and what nonsense they talked, um, stuff like that. Then he said, he thinks uh, they were talking about the fishing industry. Why did no one ask him his opinion? What did they know about the fishing industry? Now, what's interesting is that then it turns to Lily Briscoe and L Lily Briscoe knows that he's thinking that somehow. She has this sort of x-ray vision, literal x-ray vision. Lily Briscoe knew all that. Sitting opposite him, could she not see as in an x-ray photograph the ribs and thigh bones of the young man's desire to impress himself, lying dark in the midst of his flesh? And there's this 
disturbing image of the skeleton of his vanity, right? It turns out that it's his vanity that is a kind of skeleton that she can see. And she feels something for it. That thin mist with convention had laid over his burning desire to break into the conversation. But she thought screwing up her Chinese eyes and remembering how he sneered at women, can't paint, can't write. Why should I help him to relieve himself? And then she remembers the code that Mrs. Ramsey lives by, right? There is a code of behavior she knew whose seventh article it may be, says that on occasions of this sort, it behooves the woman, whatever her own occupation may be, to go to the help of the young man opposite so that he may expose and relieve the thigh bones, the ribs of his vanity, of his urgent desire to assert himself. As indeed it is their duty, she reflected, in her old maidenly fairness, to help us suppose the tube were to burst into flames. Then she thought I should certainly expect Mr. Tansley to get me out. But how would it be, she thought, if neither of us did either of these things? So she sat there smiling. I, I think love that's one of the most powerful moments. Yeah, for I me, love that. That. I love that. And also, I'd love is it is it really a step back like what would uh, the, the i don't know i'm not a specialist of that that time period but it makes me it miss, charles stancy always remind me of mr collins you know like uh right prejudice and and i don't know i feel like with mr collins there's almost no it's just so it's it's just he's just so ridiculous and awful in every possible way like there's no redeeming there's no extra vision into his like desire to, you know, he doesn't have his real friends, right? He doesn't exist beyond being a sycophant to uh, Lady Catherine de Bourgh. <laughs> and that's like his only being. Whereas here, I feel like Charles Stansley, as much as, you know, there's there's a disdain for him that he has more almost kind of a... a I'm an thinking idea. less of Tansley and more of uh, people like uh, Mrs. McNabb, you know, of... Uh, working class people. And I don't think that novels, no matter what the political position of their uh, of the author was, like Balzac as a royalist could imagine working class people who had all sorts of thoughts and feelings and motivations independent of the upper classes. Mm. And so I don't think it's remarkable for Virginia Woolf to be like trying to do this because this has been the project, I think, of the novel in a mainstream sense for a long time. Um, I don't know. That was just an aside, though. I, I'm really impressed with the idea of the skeleton of his vanity, that creepy image that then gets taken up as uh, what what she can see, what she is supposed to be able to see. And then according to that old code, be able to see and to help. Um, but what she thinks, oh, why, why can't we just relieve ourselves of these codes, you know? Yeah, I really, I really actually really enjoyed that section you read out, Tara, also because you read it out from like it was a long passage and you kind of walked us through it. And it also showed kind of the beauty of the text, how we're going from one mind to the other and deeper and deeper. I really enjoyed that passage a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and, really and how it starts from one place and then it goes completely in the opposite direction and then the other you know she's thinking something really horrible about him and then something positive about him and then she kind of like so it's just interesting the way her thoughts are veering but yeah like what if what if he wasn't the what if what if he wasn't the one who rescued her on the tube and she wasn't the one who appeased his ego then like what would happen then I like that idea I really like how the interiority comes via people. Usually it's through an through someone looking at someone else. And so you hear something about what they look like and then it goes in to the consciousness of the person. And it's always through eyes and exchanges of gazes. 
it really feels like kind of like an internal monologue and it contains like the chaos and the contradictory natures of our internal monologues but it's done in such a way that we can follow and understand it's remarkable skill i think I also love how like illogical it is um, yeah. like there are moments where uh, so Mrs. Ramsey for example in her mind she's just kind of completely dismissing Charles Townsley as being you know really obnoxious and then she'll balance it out in her mind by saying but he's got a nice smile hasn't he <laughs> and and that somehow creates some balance and, and she can feel softer towards him and that happens in so many different ways so so much throughout the text and and I think it's so true to life isn't it the weird kind of inconsistent feeling that you can have for somebody and how it can just you know in in the space of 10 seconds go through so many different um feelings I, I mean I, I think this is what I was already saying before I feel like it's so extreme the 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 way she goes from one to the other and it's not it's not just that she likes his smile it'll be like he's just such an amazing man he's so admirable he's so um intellectual he's so important and it's so extreme that it, it makes me think that it it is her trying to talk herself into or convince herself of, of this but um, isn't that a part of mrs ramsey's character she's kind yeah. like continuously being accused of exaggerating so it could just be that she she kind of thinks in these extreme ways as well and um that that's just how she kind of expresses herself to herself and to others I'd, I'd really love to touch upon another aspect of the text which is the darkness of mrs ramsey um, there is there is something there that is very very uh dark and dangerous and it feels important to go into also kind of thinking in the context of Virginia Woolf's own life. She explores this with Mrs. Dalloway as well. Mm -hmm. I find it really fascinating, this kind of access. So, so we're, we're talking about her as this mother, maternal figure and perhaps someone who doesn't think a lot. But then there's also this these um, plunges into the, the depths and her husband is aware of this, just as Virginia Woolf's husband was aware of her own plunges into the depths. And that's something that they're also navigating together. He gets quite upset whenever she goes into that dark place. And part of the reason why she is the way she is, it seems, is to avoid that dark, dark place. The last thing she wants to do is kind of be distracted enough to hear the waves, for example because they will remind her of, of, you know, I guess the impermanence of life. Yeah, I mean, I think that's in the, the fact that she has these dark moments, like there's that, the terror that she feels, the rumbling terror from the noise of the waves. And also that really, I mean, one passage that I've always found kind of difficult to understand, which is, you know, at the end of part two, you know, when, he just wants her to say, I love you. And she won't say it, even though she loves him. Like the, those, those things. I think that we can't really separate them from the way that Virginia Woolf kills Mrs. Ramsey, which is in a bracket, uh, right? Like completely like randomly at the at where you least expect it in, in a bracket. And I think they, they all connected, you know, the, the, the darkness she feels might maybe connected to the world and the oppressions that she, uh, you know, is the product of in many ways but also her death and 
there's also a, there's also a secret don't you think there's a secret in the text it's like nobody knows what happened to her there's a few indications of like something happened to her it's 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 subtle but there are indications of like, i mean i remember that we're never told right we're never actually told how she died she just dies oh no sorry oh. i mean there's a secret to her past oh yeah um, like as in something before there was there was someone before mr ramsey for instance there's also indications of a woman potentially um yeah there's just little hints of some something beyond something in her past or even the way that the war like haunts the the novel right from the from the catalog that james is cutting out it's an army catalog and it kind of like or or the concept of empire like it's all there but it's all kind of in the background and not intruding on the sort of central plot which of course kind of feels like a device to kind of bring together all these other things so i'm wondering if it's like that like this there's it's an allusion to what is lost you know what is lost through the war what is lost in those kind of power dynamics and what is lost in that world you know she's so obsessed with time passing yeah i mean there is i like the word haunting so it definitely feels to be a, a haunting and also um it feels it feels to me as if there's an underlying message in this novel that lily brisco in fact is able to keep this kind of darkness at bay because of her her art you know and so i felt like this is almost i mean first of all this virginia woolf's exploration i i get really interested in like the writer in her personal life always i don't know why it's a thing but first of all it's virginia woolf's like exploration of her relationship with her mother but then i think it's also her relation her relationship with herself and these aspects of of herself so she's divided it like she's put the darkness into mrs ramsey and the art which i think perhaps saved her from her own darkness into Lily Briscoe and there's this kind of strange battle going on but it didn't save her she she killed herself a uh, virginia of yeah exactly it didn't save her it saved lily briscoe yeah it saves but lily. but okay. yeah it didn't save it didn't save virginia wolf i mean uh virginia wolf i feel also uh, there there was there were secrets you know there were secrets in her past and uh, some of them occurred in this very place where she sat to the lighthouse but i don't know i often feel like nervous about doing biographical readings um especially with women because it's just it's been used as a way to minimize their import in literature quite a lot uh the case in point would be sappho that people like said uh, her work was so good she couldn't have been a woman she must have been a goddess <laughs> like it's, uh, it's this idea that like oh you know it must be because she, this happened to her so i'm 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 nervous about doing that especially because and you know she killed herself and like that's a whole thing but but you know, i i realized this morning actually that she you know her husband had a press and they were among the first to publish freud um in the uk so there was obviously an interest also there in kind of like the unconscious like the repressed like for freudian kind of and you know ideas that might also be there in the novel it's also like the both lily and mrs ramsey make indications that they just want to drown like they want to sink into into the water it's really hard to not think of virginia woolf's own life when you see these women being attracted towards the water and seeing it almost as a space of immortality right mm. i mean it 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 is a difficult separation to make uh it's very unfortunate it happens to sylvia plath as well like i guess female writers who take their own life that sometimes becomes central in our readings or uh, mental health issues or whatever so yeah they almost become part of their own 
fiction in in some ways like there's there's such a kind of a a story around it and yeah it, it really kind of blurs the boundary between their created work and their actual life but I do yeah I do think it's problematic though to to kind of to bring that into the text yeah, I mean, nobody talks about how Julius Caesar is epileptic, you know, like no one cares. It's just everyone's focusing on the conquest of Gaul. And I feel like when, when it's a woman, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, you know, this happened to her, that happened to her. She, you know. Um, really? I mean, people, yeah. the answer to then also bring it in with male writers rather than to not, because, I mean, if, isn't it important to always think about a text coming from a particular life and a particular period and a particular point of view and so maybe we should be doing that with books by men as well I, I, I think didn't, that I didn't there's know a difference sorry oh sorry sorry Pakita I didn't know about the Julius Caesar thing but like Dostoevsky was epileptic and people talk about that a lot or Henry James I think his father was epileptic and how those things Stephen King is another like people whose uh, trauma tra I guess it's just like a personal interest as well but people whose personal trauma like weaves into the text and how that informs it and sometimes forms the core of it I, I don't know I see what I see what Kavita is saying about maybe bringing it in with the with the men as well mm. whether it explains sorry Pakiza I'm so sorry no no it's fine I, I was just going to say I think um, providing context is helpful but uh, when it becomes like the way in which you sort of judge a text I think that is less helpful um, and I, I do think that there is more of that almost kind of like mythologizing of the author um, that, that I uh, personally I, I feel like I come across that more with female writers um, than with male writers but um in terms of the the brackets and you know in the the post-war um sections of the book where she just mentions that Prue has died and that Andrew died and Mrs Ramsey's dead I actually thought that was like inc incredibly powerful and almost because of the fact that it's such an aside it becomes so central like you it really it, it hits you quite hard and and it it does almost um like alter the atmosphere of the book when you're reading so um yeah I, I, it felt like she almost it, she almost does that on purpose you know so you're able to really feel the trauma if that makes sense it's yeah, I mean, I, sorry, go ahead. It's also the contrast with the, you know, the first section, and it's like mm -hmm. this microscopic detail, like in this mm -hmm. really solid structure that's created, and you know, such 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 detail, and then it's kind of almost, become, you know, shown to be something that's not so meaningful as you know it feels when you're reading it, that it can just go just you know, in such little words. But what were you mm -hmm. going to say, Nassim? Well, I just, um, I was looking at the brackets and um, it, the, the brackets, 
I, I kind of feel that this book is really about, uh, uh, not really, it's about many things, but one of the things that it's also about is kind of, um, uh, you know, male literature and her place in that, you know, because of Virgil and Mr. Carmichael and, uh, you know, all these other kind of um, aspects of the novel. And I noticed that in the brackets, so the first and last things that are bracketed is Mr. Carmichael. The first one is Mr. Carmichael reading Virgil. And the last one is Mr. Carmichael publishing his own poetry. And, and then uh, uh, Mrs. Ramsey Prue and Andrew's deaths are kind of in the middle just of those two things that are kind of bookends. And I, and I, I can't help but feel that that's sort of saying, you know, while it, it's sort of drawing our attention to the continuity, you know, of, of, of men reading other men, being published about them, writing their own things, going to university, like there's this, con that happens, that continues to happen. Meanwhile, these characters uh, die either in childbirth or, or, or during war or for reasons we don't know. We haven't talked much about the, the constant uh, references, you know, the literary references and what they mean and what they represent in the text. I mean, Tennyson is is used a lot, right? Um, and so much associated with like chivalry and honor um, in those references. I sort of felt almost, in a way, you know, there's the there's the um, the journey to the lighthouse and Cam and um, James. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Just forgot his name for a second there. Uh, they both they're almost like they have this pact between them, right? That they will stand up to tyranny um, and that that being Mr. Ramsey is almost like um, this new generation right and Lily uh, representing a, a new type of woman and, and finding place for that I all, almost felt like Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey kind of represent the old world right like before the war um, and the fact that Mr. Ramsey keeps <laughs> like spouting Tennyson in this really antisocial kind of way um, I just thought there was so so much in that, wasn't there? Yeah, and the allusions to Shakespeare as well, um, yeah, yeah. both as a kind of a symbol. There's that moment where Mr. Where Mr. Ramsey says this this rock will outlast Shakespeare, you know, and there's this. <laughs> so so there's an ongoing discourse about men and the books that they read and write. Oh my um, God, he's so obnoxious. So as well, he's like they're talking about some fishermen that drowned, and he's like, no, but my suffering is like. Yeah. Uh, the women frequently make fun, especially of Tennyson. Like he's just been quoting, what is it, the the Charge of the Light Brigade, and then the next thing is, but what had happened? Someone had blundered, and this is Mrs. Ramsey thinking. Someone had blundered, right? But the blunder results not in six hundred men dying in this sort of military heroism, but um, rather someone has annoyed her husband, right? Someone had blundered. So just the deflation, the repeated deflations of what uh, Nassim and Pakiza were pointing out as a kind of male literature. It's just that is really funny throughout the uh, novel. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's clearly Wolf is making fun. And there's there's also the scene at dinner where I think it's Tansley says, oh, no one reads Scott anymore. And then Mr. Ramsey gets really self-conscious about that. And he like <laughs> resolves to read Scott after dinner. And he's kind of <laughs> making a point of how much he's enjoying it. He's like laughing and slapping his thigh <laughs> and just having the best time being somebody who reads Scott. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. <laughs> and then and Mrs. Ramsey just casually trying to also read something after dinner, and in it, and Ramsey, Mr. Ramsey keeps thinking, oh, you know, she probably doesn't even understand what she's reading. <laughs> so yeah. awful. She, she, igno- she admits that she sometimes doesn't understand it, but it works to the discredit of the work rather than to her. That she talks about words which she had held meaningless in her mind for a long time. And they suddenly <laughs> kind of take on meaning for her in a really petty sort of pathetic context, you know. And also how um, I think almost another way of resisting that is how Mrs. Ramsey has an affinity for or likes better men who are unintelligent, right? Unintelligent, but yeah. with uh, who are pleasant. Um, and, and definitely there's something in that as well, which is almost a, a resistance um, from Wolf, I feel, to that superiority that men feel for themselves. Yeah. No, Absolutely. But I do think that there's a mockery of academia for sure in the, you know, when she describes like his dissertation, Charles Stansley's dissertation being about like, I forget how she formulates it, but it's really funny. Like it's, it's kind of me. Someone doing something about someone. Or yeah, something. someone's influence on someone else. Like it's yeah, just, yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the, his, his whole dissertation. And so I do think there's a kind of a, uh, a mockery there and and also I mean the fact that Virginia Woolf as a person is erupting into a male-dominated canon you know like she's also so it's not and and those two things are connected because like the guardians of that of that literary canon are the academics you know who kind of decide what gets taught what doesn't get taught who gets in who doesn't get in and so like there's I think they connected right gender and uh, the uh, critique of academia and the idea of uh, being a female author. Mm. Oh, there's the really funny way that Andrew describes to Lily what his dad does, which yeah. is imagine a kitchen table when you're not there. Um, <laughs> and so, so every time Lily imagines Mr. Ramsey's work in her mind, is conjured the image of the kitchen table, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. It's a very funny novel as well. Um, actually, there were so many moments which really made me laugh. Uh, the way that she pokes fun at people, uh, especially that that scene where um, Mr. Ramsey is like begging Lily for some sympathy, and she's just like, "Nope, nope, nope." <laughs> and the way that's described is gorgeous. It's like something yeah. about the puddle, like his pu- the puddles of his longing around her, and all she does is like draw up her skirt. Something yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to stop there. Uh, Thank you so much, guys. It's been a really interesting discussion and we've gone into domains that I wouldn't have, uh, yeah, that I didn't even think of. It almost makes me want to reread certain sections of the book, especially kind of the Mrs. McNabb section, for instance, and the brackets as well. Um, Yeah, uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you to Nassim for joining us. It was a real pleasure and we hope that you come again. We'd love to have you. Thank you so much for having me in in your group. It's a really great dynamic. I wish that I had more of this, you know, going on in my life. <laughs> well, come again, come again. And thank you to Kavita and Fakiza and Tara as always. Sorry, I didn't introduce myself. I'm Aisha. I should have said that in the beginning. Um, lots of love, guys, and see you soon. Bye. Thank you. Bye. See you. Bye.